yourself or do you know somebody who is just beyond repairably stubborn in life? If it's you and you're willing to confess, raise your hand. If it's your spouse, don't raise your hand. But just wink to me quietly as you leave after church today, and, and I'll know, and I won't tell them that you, you tattled um, on them. <laughs> My mom tells a story when I was a toddler of, of um, for whatever reason, I, I don't know how old I was, maybe three or four, I, I really liked, for whatever reason, to stick my hand in the VCR. Uh, for those of you who are younger than like 40, a VCR is what they had before DVD players. Um, for those of you who are younger than 20, a DVD player is what they had before Netflix. Um, yes, it's sad that we have to describe that now. Uh, but I used to like to stick my hand in, and she tells a story of trying to get me to stop doing it, and you know, you know she would pull it out, and, you know, no, the way a parent does, and after about a half an hour of going back and forth, it was to the point where I was I was in the in the living room with tears rolling in my eyes, with my hand red because she had you know hit it slowly at first and then a little harder and then a little harder. But a half an hour of this for a toddler, I just had a beat red hand sobbing, and I looked at her and with, with defiant eyes, I just stuck it back in over and over and over again until she finally just removed me. Now, as an adult, I just asked her, and I'm a dad now, so I'm like, why didn't you just remove me the first time? You know, why did you go through the half an hour? She's trying to instill in me this kind of the breaking of the, the stubbornness. Um, I stumbled on this, and I actually went to the trouble of setting up a television in this room just so that I could share this with you. This is a kid that, um, that, that I found on, on the internet who, the setup is that the kid wanted an apple, and the mom said, this isn't an apple, this is an onion. And the kid said, I want it. And so she gave it to him, thinking that, you know, one bite of an onion that's not an apple would do it. Just, just observe the stubbornness of this child. stubbornness 
goes up against the Lord, not other people. That's the account of who we're looking at today in the prophet of Jonah. Jonah is a unique book. You know, we've been in a series called The Minor Prophets. We're in our fifth week. We've looked at a bunch of them already. And Jonah is probably, I'm going to say this maybe a couple other weeks, he's probably one of the most unique of the both major and minor prophets as a book. And it's because Jonah is not preaching to the northern or southern kingdom, right? We talked about every prophet resided in north or south or preached to north or south. Some of them are before exile. Some of them are after exile. Jonah is not preaching to the northern or the southern kingdom. Jonah is not even preaching to an outside kingdom or empire or nation the way that Obadiah last week was preaching to the Edomites. Jonah is actually preaching to himself in a way. The book of Jonah is a book that is entirely about Jonah himself. It's a, a personal case study of the way that the Lord deals with one of his prophets in the midst of their stubbornness. And so while we don't know a whole lot, we do think, guess educatedly, that Jonah was the author who wrote this book. And part of why we think that is just the amount of detail that only happens between Jonah and the Lord. So if someone else wrote it, how did they know about all these things? Unless it was kind of a, a biographer, so to speak, the way like you know, Walter Isaac wrote the Steve Jobs book or something like that. But we think that Jonah was the actual author of this book. And we think that Jonah um, is probably one of those books that's famous but also not really well known. Right? Complete the sentence for me. Jonah and the... You'd be shocked by how many people that have never donned the doors of the church would actually know how to complete that sentence. It's kind of one of those universally known stories. There are people that know that story that don't even know that it's a biblical story. Right? They just hear about Jonah being swallowed up by the whale, but they have no concept of what's going on. The, the Jonah whale account, which happens, by the way, in Jonah chapter 2 of four chapters of the book, is really one of the least relevant parts to the entire book. It's the story that everybody knows, but it's not actually in any way what the story is about. Jonah himself, as a person, actually shows up before we ever get to the prophets. In the book of 2 Kings, if you will remember, Amos was one of the prophets speaking to Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. Well, Jonah spoke to Jeroboam first, years before. And he actually prophesied to Jeroboam that the Assyrian Empire would never successfully take him over. Right? Amos later undoes that prophecy. No, they're, they're going to wipe you out. And so we, from the very get-go, Jonah's kind of a shady prophet character within the Bible who is inaccurately prophesying things to, to kings in the kingdom of northern Israel. And he, he has this reputation from the get-go of being someone that's perhaps not the most reliable person. And so from the beginning, he is a questionable character. And the book opens with the word of the Lord calling Jonah to go and call against the city of Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh? Nineveh was a major city in the Assyrian Empire, which inevitably would take over Israel and wipe them and exile them and, and wipe them out. Um, at the time that Jonah was called to prophesy, it, we don't quite know. We don't think that Assyria had Nineveh as its capital yet. But eventually, Nineveh does become the capital of Assyria. It's a huge, major city within the Assyrian Empire, and it is a city of filth when it comes to the level of following the Lord. There is godlessness and violence and, and, and every type of ridiculous, grotesque sin 
It is one of the filthiest, most desolate places that exists in all of the world during this time. Nineveh was the place you wouldn't ever want to go through in daylight, let alone at nighttime. Right? You just didn't want to be caught dead there. The, the level of debauchery that was happening, the level of pagan worship that was happening was just not a place that, that people really wanted to call home. What we know about it is that it's filthy, and Jonah gets called to preach against it. That's the opening of the book when we start in Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Right? That's the opening of the book. There's no introduction to who Jonah is. It's just, here he is, the Lord calls him, go to Nineveh and preach against these people, for their evil has come before the Lord's eyes, and I want to pronounce judgment upon them. Jonah responds... In verse 3 of the opening of the book by utter disobedience so the Lord says Jonah you're my prophet go to Nineveh preach against these people they're evil I'm gonna I'm gonna judge them and I want you to be the mouthpiece through which I do it Jonah responds by fleeing to Tarshish now Nineveh if you're looking if you know where Israel is Nineveh is kind of northeast in what would be today eastern Turkey region Tarshish is at the very bottom tip of Spain, which at that time was really kind of the end of the earth, right? And so Jonah doesn't just respond by saying, no, I'm not going to go. Jonah responds by getting on a boat and fleeing to literally the opposite end of the world, like to, to the best of his knowledge. You look at a map, top left corner, right? Or top right corner, Nineveh, bottom left corner, Tarshish. He wants out of there. He wants to run from Nineveh so fast that no one would ever see him going. And, and the question that we immediately kind of have is, well, well why? Right? There's a couple possible reasons. Maybe you're afraid of a city like that. Maybe you're afraid to go and, 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 and you, you worry that your safety might be in jeopardy if you spend time there or go anywhere near there because it's a different empire than, than Israel. Uh, but what we see in the, the life of Jonah in these passages suggests kind of to us that he's really not that afraid of death. We'll find that out in just a second. So it's not that he's scared. I mean, we don't find out why he doesn't want to go until the very last chapter. Right? And so Jonah doesn't just flee. He goes to Tarshish. And when he's on the ship, the Lord is kind of mad at him. And, and he responds to Jonah by arising a great storm that is almost going to capsize the boat. Right Now Jonah's in the bottom of the boat sleeping and all the sailors are going crazy up top trying to figure out how to navigate the storm. And they're, they're, they're like, man, surely someone's God must be angry with us. Like this storm is not just your average storm. This is a divine level kind of event. Who do we have on board? And they start calling people and Jonah is one they call. and say, Jonah, does this have anything to do with you? Like, do you have a God who might have a reason to be upset with you about something that you're doing per se? And Jonah comes out and says, yes, I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord. Which is ironic because he's not obeying him, right? And yeah, this is probably happening because of me. And then he says something that tells us that he's not afraid to die. He says, you should probably, if you wanted to stop, throw me overboard. That's probably the best way to make the storm settle is just throw me over the, over the side of the boat. I'll die. The, the storm will settle and all will be well. Right? Does that sound like a guy who's afraid to die? No. As a matter of fact, Jonah multiple times in the book tries to get either people or God to kill him. He wants to die. 
So he would rather die than go to Nineveh to do what God has asked him to do. The sailors, ironically, don't really want to do that right away. They're, they're, they're fearful of the Lord, and they actually have more faith than Jonah does. But eventually they relent, and as they kind of wash their hands clean of it, they, they toss him overboard, and the storm subsides. Jonah then gets swallowed up by a whale, or a great fish. We don't actually know that it's a whale. It's one of those things that, you know, the story always says Jonah and a whale. Uh, there's nothing that suggests that. We don't know. It could have been a whale. Uh, it could have been just a grand fish that God created just for this account. It doesn't really matter. But Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. Uh, the, the remainder of chapter 2 is kind of a poem of semi-repentance. He's kind of sorry, but kind of not. He never really owns his mistakes. He just says, thank you, Lord, for putting me in this fish uh, and, and preserving me. And at the end of chapter 2, he's vomited back out by the fish. And the Lord again says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He renews his call, and this time Jonah reluctantly obeys. Probably because he realizes, God is not going to let me off the hook. God is not even going to let me die instead of going. So I guess I can be miserable in a fish belly for the rest of my life, or I can go to Nineveh. And that's finally the kick in the teeth that he needs to go. So he gets there. And we're told that the city is so large, it takes three days to just to traverse the city. That's how big it is. And when Jonah gets there, he spends the equivalent of about one day's journey actually going into the city. And he barely gets in. And this is the sum total of his prophecy. The Lord says, go prophesy against my people in Nineveh. This is the, the crazy effort that Jonah puts in. He gets there, and then in three, chapter 3, verse 4, he walks into the city and goes, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, that's all. <laughs> that's literally what he says. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no, thus saith the Lord. There's no, the Lord is angry with you for disobedience because you haven't obeyed. So the people of Nineveh, they don't know why they're being overthrown. They don't know if this guy is a lunatic. They don't know, is there a way that we can avoid the overthrowing that you're talking about? He says nothing to them, right? Most prophets that we read in Scripture, they come to the people with a pretty clear agenda. They say, look, you have done this and this and this and this. You have angered the Lord. Repent and turn from your ways, or you will be destroyed. And a lot of times they repent. Sometimes they don't, right? There's, there's a chance to actually move and react to what you're saying, right? But if someone just walked up to you in the middle of of town as you're on your way to work and just said, in 40 days, you're going to get hit by a bus. Is there something I've done to deserve this? Is it why? Right? Like, what, what is the context in which that happens? But what we see Jonah do when he finally obeys after all of the, the ocean and the fish and the near-death experiences and the miraculous storm and all of the things that God powerfully does, when he finally listens, he does the absolute bare minimum, nothing else. That's our Jonah. He's very much a person that we would want to be emulating in life, as you can tell. The more shocking thing is that Jonah's efforts, those awful efforts, in, in one of the most sinful, non-godly cities on earth, actually produces a pretty sweet result. Against all odds, the city actually repents. That, that, that 
if you could call it even a prophecy, that lowball effort of Jonah somehow reaches that word gets to the king of the city of Nineveh, and the king repents, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he repents and he calls, he makes a proclamation to the entire city to repent, and the whole city of Nineveh repents to the Lord and turns from their ways and changes things and turns them around. That's insane. And so Jonah's non-message actually has the effect that God thinks and, and wants it to have. And he tells everyone to repent. And then when God says and sees what the city has done, God indeed chooses to relent. And so at the end of chapter 3, we see that God chooses then not to sack the city and relent in his judgment of Nineveh. And this in the beginning of chapter 4 is where we'll pick up our passage for today. Because once we get into the weeds of 4, we start to realize what's actually happening in Jonah's heart. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Here it is. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then the dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. It's the word of the Lord. Jonah's response is unbelievable. It gives us the, the whole motivation of the whole book and what everything is about. He's not afraid to go to Nineveh out of fear of what will happen to him. He's afraid to go to Nineveh because he's afraid that God might get the results that he's after. He's literally afraid of being successful in the city because Jonah hates Nineveh so much that the idea, the very idea that they would repent and turn to the Lord and find mercy in his sight is unpalpable to Jonah. So he says, listen, I would rather die. Throw me over the boat. He tries to die in the whale. Kill me now when it's, when it's time for the, the mercy to be dished out. I just want to die. Aren't you being a little irrational, Jonah? No, I'm not. I'm angry and I'm justified in my anger. Now just kill me. I would rather die. I don't want to see 40 days from now when the city doesn't get destroyed and everybody actually gets spared. Just kill me now. 
that. Fine, I'm going to go out of the city then, and here's what Jonah does. This is like four-year-old toddler level stubborn. He goes out of the city, and he walks up the hill, and he sets himself up a little booth to sit by, and just waits and pouts like a toddler. He says, listen, maybe, just maybe, I'll get lucky, and in the next 40 days, the city will screw up and turn away again, and then I'll actually get to see them be smitten, smoked, smoked, whatever, right? That's what he's hoping for. He's literally sitting there for 40 days and nights, trying to make sure that maybe, just maybe, God's anger will indeed fuel against them. Can you imagine the level of hatred in his heart that he has to have for the people of Nineveh? And trust me, they were worth hating. But come on. That he would so vehemently go against the word of the Lord. And so God, when he's out there, decides to grow up this, this plant to provide shade. And it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad, right? The word exceedingly shows up 12 times throughout the whole book of, of Jonah. And one of the ways it shows up is that he's exceedingly angry. So his anger against Nineveh is matched by his gladness for the plant. And then when the plant withers because a worm gets sent, he's exceedingly angry again, which again matches the mood. So the plant is angering and making him as glad as the Ninevites are making him angry. And the mercy of God is making him angry. His emotions aren't really level. They're always up or always down. That's how Jonah functions. And no matter how much God tries to reason with him, it doesn't work. He says, look, you, you pitied this plant. You're getting all this worked up about this plant that came and went in a day. Don't you think I should pity the city that has 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left? By the way, that's a that, that whole phrase, 120,000 that know their right hand, don't know right from left, is a, a phrase that is meant to insinuate that there's 120,000 innocent people, right? So, like, think of, like, women, children, right? Like, casualties of war, you know, like the, 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 the innocents, not the soldier, not the, the people that are the sinners. But if I took the city because of the sin of it, there'd be 120,000 totally, you know, people that don't deserve it, that deserve the pity, that would die. Don't you think that if the plant matters this much, that the lives of all those people matter that much? And then he throws in a little thing at the very end. And also, there's a lot of cattle. There's a lot of beef going to waste, too. He's saying, look, like, you're angry about this plant, yet there's the lives of this many people that are at stake, and you don't seem to even be able to shed an ounce of care for their sake, no pity for them, no mercy at all. And the, the, the scary of the book is that it ends there. It just ends. There's no resolve. There's no, well, what was Jonah's answer to the question? Right? I like to hope that Jonah eventually came to his senses and repented. And the reason I tend to hope that is because he wrote this book, most likely. Right? Like these aren't things you talk about or write down if you're going to remain stubborn and think you're right. right? He would have written a different kind of book. I like to think. So what does this do for us? What do we take from this? The book of Jonah is a book about Jonah's heart. It has little to nothing to do with Israel or Nineveh or exiles or judgments or God's people. It's all zeroed in on Jonah himself. It's a book about how God goes to exceeding lengths to do heart surgery on a single guy in the most intense way ever thought possible. Let me ask you this. Do you have people in your life who you would be kind of upset if you didn't save them? 
who you're not really interested in going after because quite frankly, you really don't care if they come to know the Lord. Right? They're, maybe they're ungodly people, maybe they're awful people in general or they've done awful things to you. It doesn't have to be enemies like we talked about with Obadiah last week, but it can be maybe people that just don't act Christian enough. Oh, I would never invite them here because they wouldn't fit. They wouldn't act the way that they're supposed to act. They, they, they don't fit that mold. I don't, I don't think that I would want them here. Or, I mean, if they came here, God, maybe they might stay. That would change the way this church is or functions. Maybe they would invite some of their friends, and then this, this church would just never be what I want it to be or the, the same again. And I just, I don't know if I really want that much change or if I really think that they're worthy or deserving of it all. They're just really, just not good people. I had a friend in youth group growing up who <clears throat> refused to invite one of his closest friends because while they were friends, they really were more frenemies. Like they were very different, and he was afraid he liked to be his person here that's this way, and then he liked to be a different kind of person when he came to youth group, and he was really worried about those two things mixing and either of them figuring out what the other was doing, right? He wanted to live one life here and one life there, and so he never wanted to invite anyone from this circle of friends because he would be worried that A, they would judge it, or B, even worse, they would change this and somehow converge his worlds together. What if that friend actually responded to the gospel if he heard it, stuck around? That would be terrible. That would change things. What if those around us whom we don't think will fit in here actually showed up if God grabbed a hold of them and it changed the nature of our church and people around us? Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with those different dynamics? What if someone that you, would, that you knew had done some awful stuff showed up here and actually repented and came under the blood and the mercy of Christ. This isn't me pronouncing judgment upon you guys. Right? Every one of us has someone in our life who we probably feel at least a little bit that way about. Maybe it's something really awful that they've done. Maybe it's nothing even that bad. So this is something hard for all of us. Would you be okay with that? Jonah wasn't. He saw the Ninevites as a filth that is beyond saving. And he refused to even try because he was so scared that it just might work. That's why when it actually works, what does he say? Oh Lord, isn't this what I said? I knew you would just, man, I just knew you would be the, the do the whole mercy gracious thing. I just, that's who you are. Always mercy, always gracious. You know what he doesn't think about? His own mercy and his own grace that he's received from the Lord. That got him to that place in the first place. One of the things we do so quickly as Christians is we forget how much we live under the everyday mercy and grace of, of Christ. We forget that the only reason we sit here is by the blood of Jesus. Not by our own awesomeness that, that we somehow exude. That's not how we get here. We don't get to sing to the Lord and confess to the Lord and call upon the Lord out of our own greatness and, and great doing or because of our tithing or because we come and have perfect church attendance or because we volunteered at a fall fest yesterday for a couple hours. Those things don't do it for us. What gets us here is the grace and the mercy of Christ. And outside of that, you should not be here. And you would not be here. And I would not be here. Right? Jonah forgot that. And man, we are quick to forget that too. The story of Jonah is meant to cut you to the heart. It's meant to challenge your perceptions and your hypocrisy. 
When we who are products of God, great mercy, God's great mercy, refuse that mercy for other people. We go against what the Lord's calling us to do. And so it's a warning. God was willing to wrestle with Jonah in ways that were extremely uncomfortable. And I can tell you that if you're unwilling to move into the same merciful pathways that God sets out for you when it comes to other people, the Lord will do heart surgery with you too. Hopefully none of us will get swallowed up by a whale when we leave here this week. But it's, it's an account of, of extreme measures that should tell you that the Lord will take extreme measures in order to get to the point where his people come to the same mercy and grace offered to other people than he offers to you. And so the question is, will you also repent? Will you seek to view people the way that God views them or their potential, no matter what, no matter who? That's Jonah. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. We thank you that you, in the times of our need, came and showed love and compassion and pity on us. That when we weren't even looking for you or to you, that you called us to be your own. That you love us. That you reason with us. You're tender with us when we sin and go against your ways. That you treat us like sons and daughters with the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray for those people that we have in our hearts and minds that ah, we really just kind of wish they didn't ever come here. We pray that you might call them to yourself. We pray that you, the God who is the great Redeemer, might have a future in store for us where we get to be in paradise across from our enemies and those whom we wish weren't there and be grateful and rejoicing for we were all in need of a savior and we got one. Help us to soften our hearts towards those who uh, just make us uncomfortable or we have done evil against us or who wrong us or who don't fit the mold, God. You tell us that you don't have a mold. There's no certain way that Christians are, but there's one distinction, and that is under the blood of Christ, we're judged by the wrath of God. Those are the only two choices we have. Thank you that you've called us. We pray that you might call others unto yourself. We love you, and we praise you, and all God's people said, Amen.